0: Hi, I'm Jess Winterstein, and this is episode one of LSEIQ. This is a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. Many people are outraged at how much big company bosses are paid, particularly the fact that it seems to be increasing at an extraordinary rate but businesses insist that large salaries are crucial for attracting and retaining top talent in a highly competitive global market. It's a debate that clearly divides opinion. Government has tried to intervene. Some shareholders have rebelled, but big business continues to call the shots. In this episode, Joe Bale investigates how chief execs continue to command such enviable rewards and asks the experts, are they worth it?
1: Chief executives are taking home record pay packages worth tens of millions while most people are lucky to get a small annual pay rise and many are struggling on minimum wage and zero hours contracts. It all seems rather unfair but on the other hand, highly talented people have always commanded lavish salaries and many of us aspire to be among them. In my quest to find out if the pay packages are money well spent, I began by speaking to Deborah Hargreaves. A former business journalist who is the founder of the independent think tank, the High Pay Centre. She explained how, until relatively recently, being a chief executive was not such a big deal.
2: Well, we've seen a real change in the role of chief executives over the past 30 years, and what we've seen since 1980 is an escalation in pay. At the same time, the job has changed. So you've gone from um, having a chief exec who was a normal middle-class businessman in the 80s with a job that could be compared to the local bank manager, the headmaster, the local police chief, and with pay rates that compared. So 15 times average wages, really. And then we moved into an era of high finance in the 80s as the city was deregulated. A lot of investment banks came over from America. The economy became much more financially orientated and companies got bigger. The chief executive's role changed. It became more global, more international. But we also saw pay rocket And we have seen pay go up from the late 1990s. It was about 47 times average wages. Well, now we've got it at £5.6 as an average for Britain's top businesses. That's the FTSE 100. And that's 160 to 170 times average wages.
1: That's a pretty staggering increase. But with globalisation, the job has obviously become way more challenging.
2: No one disputes that these are difficult jobs. It's long hours, it's a lot of responsibility and they are hard. You know, they do put a lot of effort in. But what we're saying is this pay has just got out of all proportion to everything else that we measure it against. And pay hasn't gone up in hand in hand with the performance of companies. So companies that share prices and companies' profits have not grown at the same rate as executive pay. So we sort of see a group of managers, if you like, taking more than their fair share at the company, at the same
1: time holding down wages for everyone else. There is an idea that creating a wealthy elite is good for the economy, that everyone benefits. That was the theory that this would
2: trickle down into the rest of society. But actually, that has been disproved. It doesn't really trickle down. People who earn millions are more likely to save their money or they spend it on top quality assets like very expensive houses, yachts, one-offs. They don't kind of affect the economy day to day. If you spread money more freely through the economy, you give it to people lower down the income scale, they're much more likely to spend it.
1: So shareholders in some big companies have staged rebellions. That must have had an impact.
2: Well, shareholders should be doing more, we think. Some of them are very engaged and you are seeing um, more protest votes at big companies. So, for example, we had 60% of shareholders voting against pay at BP, where the chief executive was paid £14 million, but the company made a big loss. So some shareholders have been protesting, but not enough. Some of them are just not engaged enough. They don't have the resources to devote to looking at pay, um, or they just don't care because they're in the same sort of high pay regime themselves. So we think that more needs to be done. We can't just rely on shareholders to
1: hold companies to account. So it seems that big companies clearly consider it money well spent. Dr. Dirk Genter, Associate Professor of Finance at LSE, told me why.
3: I do understand the concern and I do share the concern to at least some extent. There were certainly a lot of excesses in CEO compensation. There are individual firms where the boards are powerless and managers are literally just taking enormous amounts of money off the table that really belong to shareholders or workers or some of the other stakeholders in the firm. So excesses exist and we need to fight them. However, I think that general criticism of, oh my God, somebody earns 10 or $20 million per year, therefore it's a bad thing, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Think about a $10 billion company. If we're finding a CEO who's able to increase firm value by 1%, that's $100 million. So now look at that from the perspective of the board of directors. You're trying to hire the expensive CEO, well-established, tremendous track record, is likely gonna increase firm value or a somewhat unproven, much cheaper quantity, an alternative person you could hire. If you convince yourself that the first person, that expensive person, is able to increase firm value by 1% compared to that second person, we're talking about $100 million. So now that first person costs 10 or $20 million more than the second person, what's the rational choice? It's obviously to hire that expensive person. So I think just looking at the levels and saying, oh my God, these are much more than I earn. Yes, it is enormous amounts, more money than any one of us will ever earn. But it doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong in the process.
1: So the big pay packages are there to attract and retain the most gifted people. To find out more about this process, I spoke to Dr. Max Stoyer of LSE's Centre for Philosophy. He interviewed headhunters at 10 major executive search firms to find out how they identify the best candidates. What he discovered was really quite surprising.
4: We were interested in how they went about finding these people and in particular, whether they were very scarce. Some people say, well, the high remuneration has to do with scarcity. There are so few of these really talented people. And what we saw was that performance plays a relatively small role in the people that they select It has far more to do with uh, career path, with uh, references, which are largely character references, and most important, what the search firms call fitting in. Will this person be accepted by the board, regarded as a good appointment or not? What
1: are the hallmarks of the candidates they put forward?
4: Well, uh, one of the questions that we put to the firms was, To what extent do they use psychometric techniques? And very few place much emphasis on that. They talk about chemistry. You know the person when you see them, that they're the right person. Uh, Good communication skills, for example, are regarded as quite important. Now, good communication skills, that's something they can observe. How they're going to perform in a firm is not something you can observe. And so uh, we postulated the idea. In biology, uh, biologists talk about indicator traits. A bird looking for a mate can't observe the genetic makeup of a potential mate, but they can observe the feathers. And so the feathers become an important indicator. And I think in this world, indicator traits are extremely important. For example, CEOs tend to be quite tall, they tend to be well-spoken, they tend to be good communicators, they tend to have an aura of authority about them. All of those things can be observed, but performance, that's something different.
1: Surely the headhunters keep a track record of performance.
4: There was one thing that did surprise us a great deal, and we asked all of them, uh, once an appointment is made, do you follow up on how well that person has performed? And they said to a man and a woman, and in fact, many of the people in the search firm activity, particularly at the high level of women, they all expressed to us some concern that they don't follow up with how well people have done. So they don't really know whether they are successful from that point of view. However, they are interested in a continuing relationship with the firm. There may be other jobs coming along and they would like to secure those jobs, So they do follow up how well the uh, person that they've uh, succeeded in placing in the firm, how well that person is being received by his or her colleagues, which is, of course, a very different thing from performance. That's more like a popularity uh, contest. It doesn't actually mean, and this is another interesting thing that they emphasized, it's not so important for the CEO to be liked, but it is important that the CBO be regarded as a legitimate holder of the job. And uh, that's a slightly different thing from being liked. But again, performance in the sense of making good decisions or in some way improving the performance of the firm, that really is a very secondary matter. Do
1: you think then that there are lots of people who could run big companies and that scarcity is a
4: myth? In general, these suitable candidates are uh, good people, Uh, they're certainly not fools, but they're nothing all that miraculous. And the search firms were quite firm on this point that these people, they have to have reasonable levels of intelligence, but they uh, don't have to be uh, extraordinary in that regard. Uh, A colleague was up for a senior appointment at Northwest Airlines, and I said, I thought he stood a very good chance of getting the job because he was the brightest among the contending candidates. And he said to me, no, I don't think that's going to help me very much. Brightness can be bought. And I thought that was interesting, that uh, if there is a need for great understanding, well, you can hire somebody for that. And the qualities of the CEO is really something rather different.
1: When you spoke to the headhunters, did they have an opinion about pay?
4: So I guess a major part when we looked at the issue of remuneration was, and this runs through not just our study but hundreds of other studies, that CEOs not unreasonably want to get paid the rate for the job. And if that rate for the job is £10 million a year, they feel that that's what they should be getting. On the other hand, if it were £5 million a year, well, that's also what they should be getting, or £1 million a year. So the key issue is this rates for the job. Now, transparency, which has been a big part of modern policy, has had the unintended consequence that they all know where they stand in the salary pecking order. They all have a a very clear picture of whether they're in the top half or the bottom half. And if they're in the bottom half, they would like that to be renewed next year. And that is usually the case and people in the bottom half are then moved to something closer to the average, which means that we have a new average, and so on. And so we've been observing something like a 16% annual growth in CEO salaries, which has resulted in a situation where today, CEOs are paid something on the order, approximately 300 times the average salary within the firm.
1: So what did the headhunters think about pay?
4: But I would say 90% were very much of the view that the current rates of pay are excessively high and are very, very hard to justify. They were quite firm on that.
1: And what would your advice be to someone who actually aspired to be one of these super chief executives?
4: Well, one question we put to the cert firms was, supposing somebody wanted to get a, a job of that kind, and they were prepared to offer to do it for less. Would that uh, improve their chances? Absolutely not, was <laughs> their reply. If anything, your chances are better if you insist on being paid more rather than being willing to do it for less, which rather destroys this uh, activity from being a normal conventional market.
1: Professor Sandy Pepper enjoyed a long career in senior roles at Price Waterhouse Coopers before joining LSE's Department of Management. He interviewed top executives about their pay packages and came up with a radical idea which challenges conventional thought.
5: What I discovered was that whilst uh, you know, m- money was important, actually none of them said that their primary motivation came from the amount of money that they were paid. They got to where they got to for other reasons, uh, because they were challenged, because they were intrinsically motivated it wasn't simply, it wasn't really primarily a question about money. And the other thing that, that was very noticeable in all my interviews was how often the word fairness came up. And fairness in this context didn't mean their compensation compared with uh, the compensation of you know the average man on the street. Um, what they were all doing was comparing their compensation with each other. So they all had Reference people that they were making comparisons with, who were their sort of the group of uh, executives that they thought were their competitors. And there was a very strong sense of, I must be paid at least the same as them, otherwise, in some ways, it's not fair.
1: So you have a solution to spiralling pay packages, which seems a little bit counterintuitive.
5: So I think the big problem is these things called long term incentives. So at the moment, um, senior executives' packages comprise typically four different things. A salary, um, an annual bonus paid in cash, a benefits package, including pensions, um, and most importantly, a long-term incentive. It used to be stock options, but today it's um, shares provided in such a way that the executive only gets the value of those shares a certain period of time in the future. And the big growth in the value of senior executives' pay packages over the past 15 years and probably longer has, is largely attributable to their long-term incentives. So salaries, executive salaries, have gone up, you know, much the same rate as, um, as average wages. But the big explosion in, um, in, in executive total compensation is in their long-term incentive packages.
1: So it seems like they regard these long-term pay components as being worth far less than their face value.
5: So what I've discovered in my research is that executives attach a very high discount factor to to their long-term incentives when they're rewarded. When they're awarded a long-term incentive, they immediately discount the value of it by something like 70%. So, you know, it's only worth 70% of what they actually get. Um, And because of that, inevitably, they want more, they negotiate more with the companies uh, that are providing uh, these long-term incentives to them. So I think um, that peculiarly, long-term incentives are actually one of the causes of inflation and executive pay, rather than, as government thinks uh, and regulators think, a potential solution. So my My idea is that actually it would be much better to get rid of them entirely, to pay senior executives a simpler package, larger salaries and an annual bonus, uh, but none of these fancy share plans. But also to insist that they invest some of the money that they've received, some of their own money, in buying shares in the company that they work for. So they align their interests with those of shareholders because they've invested some of their own money. Now, I think you could construct a package like that, that in total would be less than the current levels of um, executive pay that we're seeing, but actually would be more motivating for the people that receive them. And so potentially, everybody would be a winner.
1: It's an interesting idea, but governments have tried various reforms with little impact, I spoke to Sir Vince Cable of LSE's Institute of Global Affairs, who tried to tackle the issue when he was Secretary of State for Business in David Cameron's coalition government. He introduced legislation requiring big companies to be more transparent about pay and giving shareholders a binding vote on pay policy every three years. I began by asking Sir Vince how much further he would have taken things were it not for the constraints of working in a coalition government.
6: This wasn't an issue where we had violent disagreements but I would have, I think, pushed things further. I think the areas of um, doubt and disagreement were how actively we should build in uh, worker consultation. there was a s- strong demand from some quarters, including the Labour opposition, to have workers on boards. So I had no objection to it, and, but it would raise all kind of practical problems about how do you consult the Labour force if most of it's in kind of mining companies in Madagascar or whatever. Um, and of course a lot of our FTSE 100, like Glencore and RTZ, are you know, global companies. They're not based on the UK Labour force. So that was one problem. Um, I, we, we did reach a compromise, which was that companies should be required to report on how they've consulted. I think if I had my time again, I would require them to consult with their labour force, but leave it open as to how it should be done. I think a second, um, fairly minor point, but the High Pay Commission were very keen that we published a ratio of top executive pay versus median. Um, Again, I have no strong objection to that. I think it might help. I don't think it would make an enormous amount of difference. And it would give fairly misleading uh, answers because you get companies like Goldman Sachs, which are fairly egalitarian. Everybody's paid millions. Uh, Whereas retailers, uh, even if they're very enlightened, you know, John Lewis, have very, very high differentials between the top man and, and the average Uh, But nonetheless, I've got no problem with that. And I think the third step, which we did consider, was to make it compulsory for institutional investors to declare how they voted. Um, The view we took here was that most investors are now voting and declaring their votes. So, you know, was there any need to legislate for it? But yes, by all means, it's something we could go back to.
1: Theresa May backed the idea of having workers on boards, but later appeared to backpedal by saying she wasn't going to force companies to do this. Do you think she should have stuck to her guns?
6: Well, I've not no quarrel with trying to toughen the thing up. I mean, I think the the difficulties about pushing this further uh, are several. One is that, of course, if you try to toughen up very considerably the legislation on executive pay for um, limited public companies... What tends to happen is they go private. Um, you know, the most controversial uh, pay award has been to WPP, but the, the guy who runs it owns a large chunk of shares. He could easily turn it back into a private company and escape all the scrutiny and corporate governance rules of FTSE 100 companies.
1: So these companies need to stay in the FTSE 100 to be open to regulation.
6: You know, and there are different ownership models, partnerships, for example, which can be used to get around this. So you're working with um, a relatively small cohort of companies. We're trying to get them to do lots of other things at the same time, you know, get more women on boards, generally have more diversity, behave in a more ethical way, be more transparent. Uh, and the more and more you pile onto these companies, the, the less and less ultimately, the less and less control you've got over them because they would opt for a different corporate form.
1: So it seems that any attempt at reforming executive pay is a huge challenge for government because big companies insist that their bosses are worth it and they will go private if pushed. I asked Deborah Hargreaves what she thinks the future holds. She explained that even the boss's own professional organisation, the Institute of Directors, has advised that massive pay deals send out the wrong message. And perhaps in the end, it might be a sense of shame that prevails.
2: There's a lot of smaller and medium-sized businesses in the Institute of Directors, and they see this as a big company problem, which is tarring the whole sector with a bad reputation. I do think that there is more of a pushback against some of these figures now. And I do think as, as a country and as a society, we need to think about this very carefully. And I would like to think that there is some restraint exercised, even by the executives themselves. You know, I'm surprised that shame has not actually um, worked. But um, could we not give them a bit of boasting power? You know, how much of my money I'm giving away rather than
1: how much I'm getting paid? Dirk Genter, on the other hand, thinks there could be some serious consequences if we push back too hard.
3: As any good economist, I'm always worried about the unintended consequences. And something that a lot of economists, certainly including myself, worry about is the allocation of managerial talent into different career streams and into different professions. And back in the 1970s, when CEOs were paid much less and when the difference between CEO pay and average employee pay was much smaller, a lot of very, very smart, talented people wouldn't actually go into corporate careers but would go into investment banking or consulting. And certainly in the 1970s, a lot of people were raising concerns that our top talent was not Ending up running our large corporations, but was just ended up being investment bankers, consultants and other jobs. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending how you look at that, there are lots of other professions where smart, talented people can make enormous amounts of money. And if we're preventing people from making enormous amounts of money as CEOs, those same people will probably end up being hedge fund managers or consultants or investment bankers. And I don't believe that we as a society necessarily desire that.
1: So Deborah Hargreaves regards chief execs as a source of growing inequality, while Dirk Genter warns that stricter constraints on pay could cause a brain drain. We've also heard from Max Stoyer that chief executives are hired for their personal characteristics rather than their performance. Both he and Sandy Pepper found that they're not really motivated by money. They just want to be paid the same as their competitors. And Vince Cable wants to toughen up regulations to force companies to consult with the labour force, but also warns against pushing too far. So it seems that high executive pay is a more complex issue than it might first appear. And it's certainly a debate that looks set to continue. Why not tell us what you think using the hashtag lse iq this episode of lse iq was brought to
0: you by joe bale tom williams and james Ratti. it was based in part on the following research headhunter methods for ceo selection by max steuer peter abel and henry wynn the economic psychology of incentives new design principles for executive pay by sandy pepper and ceo compensation by carola friedman and dirk Genter. All the associated links for this episode can be found in the show notes at bit.ly forward slash LSEIQ1. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud, please visit bit.ly forward slash LSEIQ. See you next time when we ask, what's the future of work?